So with that said, a couple quick announcements. One, I'm Jake Sullivan. It's nice to meet a lot of you guys. We've got a ton of new students. I used to teach all the time in high school, and then we hired this guy named Matt, and he gets to teach all the time, and he is awesome. So I got to oversee all next-gen ministry here at Grace, and I spend a ton of time with young adults right now. So you seniors, if you stay around and you don't leave for college, make sure you get plugged in um, to our young adult ministry when that time comes. The other announcement I have for you guys is the reality conference this weekend. We went over 3,000 tickets sold today, which is crazy to think about. Right, so, I, I mean, and, and students coming from all over the United States. So if you haven't gotten a ticket, you're free this weekend, I, I think it'll be worth it. I think it'll be fun, and, and obviously you'll, you'll leave more equipped. So how we do it here at Next with our teaching and our curriculum is we kind of meet as a team. We, we create the curriculum. LB writes, Laura Bichelle writes out all the curriculum, and then she kind of assigns the teachers, like who's teaching, is it me, is it Zane, is it Matt? Matt teaches two-thirds of the time, and then me and Zane kind of fill in from there. And LB selected this message for me tonight. A couple of them we got to kind of pick and choose, but she selected this message, and, and I think it's because she deems me as a rule breaker. And, and it's true, I don't like rules. But I would not deem myself as a rule breaker. I just think rules are black and white, and I simply see as many colors as possible in all situations, including my pants tonight. But I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about, okay, just so you guys get to know me a little bit. So I have a whole bunch of side hustles. When you have six kids, you need lots of side hustles. And I work for a, an organization called Prep Hoops, and they fly me all over the country to put on their national basketball camps. And I flew down to Florida, and I get to pick the location. So I try to like, hey, I can get a vacation there, and I can get a vacation there, and I can put on this little camp. And I picked Florida. And I flew into Orlando on a Friday, and camp's not till Saturday, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to drive over to Tampa, and I'm going to go hang out at Clearwater Beach for the day. And as I'm headed to Clearwater Beach, I get a text from the Prep Hoops headquarters, which is located here in Minnesota, and they said, hey, your uniforms aren't there. And now we have 400 athletes coming to this particular event, and you have no uniforms, and every athlete is assigned a number that goes with the college coaches packet. This is a, this is a problem. And they said, hey, we needed you to go immediately to this FedEx, which is way back in Orlando, and you need to print stickers. And you need to put stickers on their jerseys, and we're going to email all the parents, and they're going to bring reversal jerseys. And it was an absolute chaotic mess. The next morning I get there, and it's going to lose the organization eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 easy. So I get there the next morning, these athletes start showing up, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to call FedEx and figure out where these uniforms are. Well, I figured out they were in a city about 45 minutes away from where we were located, and, but they were at a FedEx shipment center. And so I argued with the FedEx shipment lady uh, for maybe 30 minutes, and I told her how we were going to sue FedEx if we couldn't get the uniforms. And, right, I was just making stuff up. And I'm like, I'm not godly at all right now. And she's like, well, sir, I'm like, oh, I know where they're at. They're 45 minutes from me. They're at the shipment center. And she's like, sir, it's a weekend. You can't go into the shipment center. Plus, it's COVID-19 Delta variant, so you really can't go into the shipment center. And your uniforms are on a trailer, and no one can go on a trailer. I was like, well, that's a lot of rules that FedEx has, but surely there's a way around the rules. So I went into my gym, and there's some shady characters that occasionally coach at these events. And, and I looked in the gym, and I said, which one of these guys is most likely just got out of prison? And, and I, I looked around, and I'm being honest. Like, I mean, I got some shady guys, right? I mean, everybody's trying to pick up 100 bucks for the weekend, and... and there's a guy coaching in sunglasses, and I'm like, well, he looks like a prime candidate. And so I, I walked over to him, and I said, hey, 
our uniforms are in this city in Florida, and they're at the FedEx Shipment Center. And they said, we can't get into the Shipment Center. He said, I'll tell you what. I will write you a $500 check if you drive there and somehow you get us our uniforms and you bring them back. Hour and a half later, he showed up with the uniforms. I wrote him a $500 check. I asked no additional questions. And then I text, this is what I text Patrick Troy, like, thank God for Jesus, right? I'm like, I would have been a really good cartel leader if I would have never come to know Jesus. Like, I got on a FedEx trailer in a shipment center during COVID on a weekend where you're never supposed to go. So I just, that gives you a little bit of insight into who I am, right? There were rules established and in place, but there were ways, clearly, I have no idea what this guy did. I didn't ask a question. I was like, you got back here with the uniforms. Here's your check. Have a great weekend. And we moved on. But now, that's a crazy story to tell. It does give you some insight into who God's created me to be. But that's, that's, that's not the message tonight. Right? The message tonight is not really about rule breaking or about Jesus and his disciples breaking the rules established by the Jewish authority of the day. The text tonight is really about our propensity to establish rules where God never designed them to be established. Before we jump into tonight's scripture, I, I want to say this, and I think this is important every week that, that we open up the word. It's super easy to read our text tonight and villainize the religious elite of Jesus' day, which are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. However, here, here's the reality of the New Testament. You and I are not Jesus in the text. For some of us, that's hard to hear. Like We're not Jesus in the text. You and I are much more likely to act and behave as the religious elite than we are to act and behave as Jesus. I believe that the only way we can live a truly authentic pursuit of becoming more Christ-like is if we fully understand that we are way more like the sinners in the Bible than we are like Jesus. I just want to set that. So as we read this, like, don't villainize. You would likely, if you would have grew up Jewish, you'd be doing the exact same thing the Pharisees were doing. And, and see yourself as a sinner in the story and ask yourself, where am I maybe putting parameters around God's gifts where they are not designed? But we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 23 and 28 through 28 tonight. And I'm going to be in the ESV. I, I think Matt teaches out of something different, but I teach out of the ESV typically. So if you have that version, we'll have the scriptures up on the screen as well. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, being Jesus. And, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read what David did? When he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, let's jump in and see what God wants to teach us tonight. And we're going to do this, and this is a good habit for you guys as you read your Bible. We're going to start by making some general observations of the text. And we're going to make four specific observations of the text tonight. And, and as we get to observation one, one thing we can always do as we're making observations is say, is there any repeated themes, repeated words, or repeated phrases? So with that said, what word or concept, this is, this, you guys got to play along now, what word or concept do we see repeated over and over in this text? Sabbath. All right, that's correct. The Sabbath is repeated four times throughout this text. 
And I know most of you in this room have an understanding of what the Sabbath was or the Sabbath is. But I want to take a couple minutes just to unpack it just a bit more for those of you not familiar with the idea. Or those of you who are like I used to be. Right? When I came to Christ, I pretended like I knew what they were talking about. I had no idea. So if you don't know what the Sabbath is, you're cool. So what is the Sabbath? It's a day set aside each week by the Lord for his people to rest. It commemorates the original seventh day on which God rested after completing creation. It takes us back to Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And while the scripture's up, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of the work that he had done in creation. So the Sabbath has one primary purpose causing two secondary effects. And I want you to hear that. A lot of times we say it has a lot of primary purposes. I think it has one primary purpose. There's a couple secondary effects that come from it. The primary purpose of the Sabbath, it is a gift for you from God. Look back at Mark 2.27. He said, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is saying to these yahoos, hey, this was a gift given to you, and you have twisted and manipulated the very gift I gave to you. Now, there are two secondary effects of this gift of rest. Right? This, one of the effects is it's a time for us to stop and remember God. An effect of the Sabbath is, is, is to take a day away from the grind and just reflect on who God, our Father, is, and especially on his goodness in relation to creation. The second effect it has, it's a time for us to trust. For many of us, and this is going to be really, really important as you guys begin to get older and you move into adulthood, but many of us, we have a hard time resting because we feel the outcome is in our hands and not God's. When we observe the Sabbath, this is a time for us to rest. It's a time for us to reflect. And it's a time for us to trust that God is going to give us the ample amount of time needed to get done what needs to be done. Observation number two we can make from this text is that Jesus is facing op opposition. From who? Who's the opposition in this text? The Pharisees, all right, look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And we see this all throughout the New Testament, right? This, this opposition or this conflict between Jesus and the religious elite, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Observation number three, in face of op opposition, Jesus responds with scripture. When reading the Bible, guys, listen up. Ladies, you're great at this stuff. Guys, we're like, oh, I don't know what he's referring to. We'll just keep going. It doesn't mean anything to me. Like, we should take the time to say, okay, Jesus is referring to some portion of Scripture in his defense. What Scripture is it? Can we glean something from the text if we just spend just a little bit more time digging? So look again at verse 25 and 26 where Jesus says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how, he, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus is referring back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 and 6. So here's, what, here's, what's, play, here's what's taking place. In 1 Samuel 20, David was essentially warned by Jonathan that his, that his father Saul was going to kill him. So David says, I'm out of here. We get to chapter 21. David's on the run. He comes to Nob, comes to the temple, and he's hungry and he asks for food. There was no food on hand except the holy bread, which was only permitted to be eaten by the priests. Long story short, the high priest meets David's physical needs, provides him the holy bread, which was, quote, unquote, 
against the established rules. Observation number four we, we make, and this will be our final observation. Jesus concludes this interaction with the Pharisees by saying, Yo, fellas, I'm Lord over everything, including the Sabbath. Everything is mine. And I ultimately rule over everything, not you. So here, here's what our four observations tell us if we put it into a summary statement. There was conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding the disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath. Jesus defends the actions of the disciples by referring back to 1 Samuel 21 while declaring he is God and Lord over the Sabbath, ultimately undermining the rules established by the religious elite regarding the gift of the Sabbath. So, now here's the question. This is what you guys are all sitting there thinking. Like, why does any of this mat matter to us? We're in high school. If you were reading Mark 2, 23 through 28, if you were honest, I mean, you would just read it and be like, ah, that had nothing to do with me. And, and, and the reality is, it has a lot to do with us. And here's the question I want to start with tonight. Where have you taken a good gift from God and slapped religiosity to it. See, within the context of the Western church, and this is important for us here at Grace Church, so I want everybody like locked in now, because I think we get an application. In the Western church, we're so quick to point out blatant sin, sexual immorality, addiction, greed, jealousy, slothfulness, bad theology. In this church, you got bad theology, you are getting called out quickly, right? And the list could go on and on. However, how often do we talk about the sin of religious elitism? And I actually think this topic is the most referred to sin issue in the New Testament. This was the battle between the Pharisees and Jesus. They had established like all of these rules and thoughts and, and, and ways to do religion. And Jesus came and broke it all. And that was the conflict. So you may be asking, like, what do I mean by religious elitism. This is where we, all of us, in some form or fashion, have taken the good gifts from God and turned them into religious identity that keeps the lost out and gives us the false impression as if we have God's favor because we do religious things. That's religious elitism. And I want to I give you a few examples. So our application points. So be asking yourself, like, do I fall in the category of the Pharisees tonight in any of these good gifts that God has ultimately given us? Prayer. We'll start there. For those of you who have come to Christ recently or still not so sure about this Jesus thing, what is the most intimidating part of Christianity for you? And I think many of you would say prayer. We have turned this amazing gift of communing with our Father into a framework I don't think Jesus ever intended. It's like, think about our language that we use. Think about the pressure we put on ourselves with regards to the amount of prayer time we have. Think about the intimidation so many of us feel when praying out loud. What if we talk to our earthly fathers in the manner we talk to our heavenly father? You ever hear some people pray? Oh, Lord. Oh, Father. Oh, God. Oh, like, he's our father. He wants to commune with us. But we made it into this constant religious activity. And before I make this next statement, I want you to hear me clearly tonight. I have a deep reverential fear of God and a holy awe of his power. 
But God is also one you can recline with at the table and just converse. If you are intimidated to pray out loud, we have made this into a religious activity instead of a genuine communing with our Father. Look at Mark 2.15 if you just scroll up a Bible, most of you probably have phones, you just look up a few verses from where we're at. But look at this picture we get of who God really is in Jesus. This is he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Like Jesus not only came as the perfect sacrifice, but he also came as a representation of our Father in heaven. Our Father is one we can recline with at the table. He is a Father that we don't have to strive for approval from. He just wants us to talk with him, walk with him, recline with him. Yet we have turned all of that into this intimidating religious activity we call prayer. And and God's not designed. It's a gift. He's given us the gift of prayer. You know where I pray at the most? While driving. I don't close my eyes. That would be bad. Right? I don't bow my head. I don't get on my face. There's times for that where you're just alone with the Lord in your, your prayer area or your closet. You just commune with the Father throughout the course of the day. It shouldn't be this intimidating thing. Fasting is another one. How many of you have fasted in this room? Anybody? Okay, I, I took it to a whole nother level. Okay, I'm going to share this in just a second. All right, fasting. For you guys that don't know what fasting is, it's the abstinence of food and or drink as an element of private or public religious devotion. Like in our need, in our hunger, it turns our attention to prayer or communion with our Father in heaven. Many of us, though, including myself, have turned fasting into an action in order to receive something. You guys want to hear this crazy story? So I end up in Sar Chad, Africa, which is in the middle of nowhere. And it's completely Muslim. There are very, very few Christians in Sar Chad. And we had this vision of, we saw how God was using basketball to reach the Muslim community all throughout Chad. And we had this vision in Sar to build this sports complex. And we were going to use sports as an avenue to reach the Muslims with the good news of the gospel. And it, the project was going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, and about a year and a half prior to that, we built an orphanage in Ghana, and it was a $300,000 project. And I did nothing. God just provided the resources from a guy that I had never met, that donated, who had never given money before. Crazy long story. But I got back, and we couldn't raise money. So I was like, okay, I'm going to fast. So I fasted. This is not, I'm not lying about this. You could ask, maybe JJ, if he's in here, might remember. I fasted for six months, sun up till sundown. So every day from the time that the, I hated the summer, by the way. Just don't start fasting in the summer. All right, but sun up till sundown. Every day for six months. And do you know how much money we raised? Zero. None. Zilch. I got done with six months. And I'm like, Lord, I'm eating Buffalo Wild Wings for lunch from moving forward. All right, like this isn't working. And we never built a sports complex in Sar Chad. And it seemed as if my fasting was an absolute hopeless deal. But here's what God taught me in that season. You aren't fasting out of genuine devotion to me. You are fasting to receive something. I really, where is your heart? 
my heart was good. Like I wanted to win Muslims to the gospel and chat. But I was fasting as a religious activity in order to get something from God. Where are you doing that in your life right now with the good gifts that God has given us? Reading of the Bible. Think about the questions we ask each other in Christian community. Have you read the whole Bible? Have you read the Bible in a year? How many chapters did you read today? If posed the following question by one of your leaders tonight, did you read your Bible today, what would you say? How many of you would lie? A lot of you. You would lie in church about how much of the Bible you read. And you don't get a helmet sticker. You guys know what a helmet sticker is? We got that picture of the helmet sticker. So in college football, like Ohio State, we got a, we got a picture up there. So every time you make a good play in college football at Ohio State, they give you a sticker and you put it on your helmet. And then you go out and play. And the more helmet stickers you have, the better you are doing. You don't get a helmet sticker for reading the Bible. Many of us are walking around like, look at my helmet. Like God did not give us his word so we could show off our helmets. He gave us his word so we could know him. Now this may not be a great example. But think about someone you want to know more. Think about someone you want to date. What do you do? You stalk them on Snapchat. Well, I guess they got to add you technically. All right. Isn't that how Snapchat? I don't have Snapchat. My kids won't let me get Snapchat. All right, Instagram. You can creep all over people's Instagram. All right, TikTok. And why are you on those platforms? Because you want to get to know them. And here's what I want to tell you tonight. God gave us this incredible book. That is Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, and for us old people in the room, Facebook all wrapped up in one place. We get to know God. But we have turned it into a religious activity to the point that many of us will lie about how much time we have been in God's Word. The Bible, God's Word is a gift. It's an amazing gift. You get to know your Father in heaven. And we have, so many of us have turned this thing into, right, religious activity. Christian community, here's my favorite one. This blew my mind. I didn't grow up in the Christian church, so I was an unbeliever. When I got into Christian community, I was like, what? Like, what is this? And, and I witnessed this Christian community, and it was often disturbing to me. Because it looked more like a gang than biblical Christian community we see in the book of Acts. And here's what I mean. Every gang has four characteristics. They're really hard to get into. They're really hard to get out of. They move everywhere together. And they have overall little concern for the world around them. Many of us have turned Christian community into an inclusive gang. Hard to get into. Hard to get out of. You move everywhere together with little to no concern for the lost around you. So I would pose this question. Consider your Christian community. Like right now, like just consider your Christian community. When is the last time someone knew that did not know Jesus was welcomed in? Your Christian community, your gang that you run with, and we all have it, is really prevalent here. When is the last time you let someone new in that didn't know Jesus? You welcomed them into your community. Missions. For many of us, we've turned missions in, look at me, look what I do for God. Laura Thompson posed this this question to me, and it was quite offensive, but it was really impactful. And I was only working here like a couple months. And and, and here's basically what she said to me. 
She said, is your identity more about what you did for God in Ghana or is your identity in Christ and Christ alone? And I was like, you work for me. You're not supposed to say that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm like, what is this, Laura Thompson? Or what do you want to do? You want to disciple? Go disciple. Do whatever you want to do. I'm intimidated by you. But it was, it was such a great statement because it was true. What Laura told me, it, it offended me. It made me all sweaty and nervous and like, please leave my office now. I don't want to talk to you anymore. But as I reflected, it was true. Missions, God's taken me off the mission field for three and a half years globally. And I think the reason he has is so I would learn to find my satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone. I had turned missions into something I did for God, and that was my identity. So here's the wrestling tonight. Why? Why did the religious elite of Jesus' day turn the Sabbath into something God never intended? Why are we bent to turn God's gift like prayer, fasting, Bible reading, Christian community missions, and I'm sure you could think of other things into, into, into things God never intended them to be. Like for many of us, we've turned the good gifts into religious gymnastics because, because we're striving to attain approval of our Father. Like our finite minds cannot comprehend the magnificent gift of Jesus. The magnificent gift is not just that Jesus came to live a life you could never live. It is not just that he died on the cross. It's not just that he rose from the dead. It's all of these things combined. Meaning that it is Christ in Christ alone that makes you right with God. That's it. There's nothing you have to do. And we are bent as sinful man to believe we have to do something to be right with God. And even for many of us that profess Christ, there is this piece of us, and it's in me often. Like, that's it? Like, that's, that's it? Like, certainly there's something I have to do. And Jesus says, no, you don't have to do anything. Just repent and believe. This is an unimaginable grace. And this unimaginable gift of grace is never more clear than with the criminal on the cross. So you guys that are following along tonight, flip over to Luke. We'll have it up on the screen too, but Luke 23, 39 through 43. And I want you to see this scene play out, and we'll be wrapping up here in a couple minutes. It says, one of the criminals who hanged railed at him saying, so right, Jesus was hung between two criminals on his day of execution. And the one says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do not fear God. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal had, on the cross, had no religious resume. He had never prayed. He had never fasted. He had no Christian community. He had never read the word of God. And he had never been on a mission trip. Here's what he did to be right with God. He recognized that he was a sinner. Look at what he said. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Here is what we all deserve. We all deserve eternal separation from God. We all deserve hell. All of us. Every one of us in this room. 
That is what we deserve. And this criminal recognized that. Like, we're a criminal. We deserve death. You deserve death. I deserve death. The second thing, though, the criminal did is he recognized who Jesus was. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal recognized that Jesus was God and was the only one with the power to save. And I love what Jesus' response to him was. I think we can glance over this so easily. easily. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus did not say, we're going we're gonna to pretend for the sake of this. We're going to pretend Matt was on the cross. He was the criminal, okay? So he didn't say to Matt, hey, I'm going to get you off the cross. I have the power to do that. And then the next 30 or so years, here is what I need you to do to be right with me. I need you to obey all the Sabbath rules. I need to make sure you and your friends do not pluck any grain on the Sabbath. I need you to pray for 30 minutes alone every day in your closet and don't ever get distracted. If you miss a day of prayer, you better pray twice as much the next day. And, oh, I need you to read your Bible all the way through in a year. And you need to memorize 270 scriptures. And when you get to heaven, I'll test you on those scriptures before you enter. I also need you to immediately find yourself one of those house churches, you know, in Jerusalem. Make sure you keep the door locked so none of those bad people you used to hang out with can come in. And then I need you to fast for 40 days and 40 nights without food. And, oh, yeah, Chick-fil-A shake counts as food. And then after you're done fasting, I need you to get on a boat, go to Rome on a 10-day mission trip. If you do all of these things and make no mistakes, then I will let you in, enter into paradise. He said none of that. But yet that's how many of us are living. Like, that is how we are living. But the problem is, like, like, Jesus doesn't demand that for us. Reading our Bible, mission trips, fasting, prayer, the Sabbath, they're gifts given to you as we live on this side of eternity. They're not religious hoops you need to jump through. The only thing that saved Matt on that cross was his recognition of his sinful state and the power Jesus had to save him. So tonight, as, as you head into small group, I, I want you to do an honest assessment of where are you currently living like the Pharisees. I love Jesus, and I know Jesus died for me. The reality is I turned missions into a pharisaical activity. I turned fasting into a pharisaical activity. Why? Because I am a sinful man bent to think I have to do something in order to receive something from God. Be honest tonight in your small group. Be honest with where you're at. And these activities, it's not like, well, I don't have to pray. I don't, like some of you dudes are sitting there like, I don't have to pray anymore. I don't have to fast anymore. I don't have to read the word. Man, I believe in Jesus. That's cool. I ain't not going to church anymore. No, that's not what we're saying. Like, we pray because we desire to commune with our Father. We fast because we want to be reminded in this hectic world of the goodness of our Father, even in our need. We read the Word because we want to know our Father more intimately. We get into Christian community because you cannot go this thing alone. If you think you can, you will get plucked off. We go on mission because we love and wholeheartedly believe in the message of the gospel. Right, we embrace these gifts that God has given to us to take part in them because of the unimaginable gift of grace. We don't embrace these gifts, guys, because we're striving to be right with God. We embrace God's gifts because of the overflow of love that we get to experience from our Father in heaven. Let me pray. Lord, you are good. And God, tonight, would you just reveal where our hearts are? 
Where have we turned the good gifts that you have given us? That's prayer, if that's fasting, if it's reading our word, if it's Christian community, if it's missions, if it's something that wasn't listed, if it's the Sabbath. And we've just turned it into religious activity. God, would you reveal it to us? Would we repent of our religious elitism? Would we fall in love with the simple grace of the gospel? The unimaginable gift that you have given us in your son Jesus. And would we overflow from that place? We desire to pray. We desire to be in your word. We desire to go and preach the gospel. But it wouldn't just be religious activity thinking we have to do something to be right with you. And God, for those in the room who do not know you tonight in their small group, would this be a night that, that you would stir their heart? That they would repent of their sin and that they would turn to you. That they would put their faith and their trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, do a mighty work in our small groups as we leave this room tonight. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.